righty. <clears throat> we're in we're, really chapters four and five are should be combined together, but the way it's divided up, as we've talked about previously, uh, chapter four deals really on the idea that God is in charge in heaven; He's on His throne. And as we looked at chapter four last week and finished it up, you should have in your mind an image of the throne room of God and how it's situated with the throne in the middle and then the four and twenty elders and and then the beast that surround it and and you got this picture of the throne room that, that basically lets everyone know that, that God is in charge. Well tonight the scene is going to be the same, just the vision is going to change. Make sure as we read this, that you're visualizing what's happening. The book Revelation is supposed to be a very visual book. As we were looking at chapter four, it was should have been having you should have been having images in your mind. My image of what I saw in my mind was reading the overall theme that's being uh, displayed for us, a picture that's being painted in our minds. And after we've read chapter four, the picture in your mind should be that God is sitting on His throne and He is in charge. Any questions or comments before we move into chapter 5? Everybody's got that in their head. All right. So chapter 5 starts with the word and, letting us know that this is a continuation. And as you are, are, are already aware of, the books, and I mean the chapters and the verses in our Bibles were not, was not put there by the Holy Spirit or by God or anybody. That was put in there by somebody else, and they just decided they would divide them wherever they wanted to divide them. But really, chapter 4 and 5 is one continuous thought in a lot of ways. Chapter 4, we saw God on his throne. In chapter 5, we're going to see uh, Jesus Christ introduced into the throne room. And so we got, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. So we're picturing whoever this is on the throne, and we know it's God, but not one time has it said this is God. But we understand and appreciate that this is what, who this is. And the only description we got of him was um, the, the picture that's in chapter 4 and verse 3 of all these precious stones. But the one that's now sitting on the throne um, says, I saw in the right hand of him. Um, the word for in here in the Greek is the idea, uh, when you combine it with the right hand, is he's extending his hand out. It's not just something he's holding in his hand, but it's more of the idea, you want a picture in your mind, that, that what he's holding, he's holding out. He's extending his hand with it in it. Okay? The King James Version says a book. Does anybody have anything different than a book? Scroll. Books did not come around until late in the second century, so... They, you know, John didn't have, see Jesus, uh, God holding a book because that would not be contemporary to this particular uh, age. He's holding a scroll. And the interesting thing about this scroll is that it was written within, meaning if you opened up this scroll, that on the inside of it would be writing, just like you would expect a scroll. You remember Sunday night we talked about Jesus was in the synagogue and he read from the scroll. Well, it's on two wooden cylinders and you would... Run one this way and run one the other way, and the writing would be right there. And um, the writing that they wrote on back then, the paper they used, was papyrus, which is an interesting uh, first kind of writing parchment we've ever had, but 
they would take uh, reeds from the river Nile, who invented it, and they would pulverize those reeds until they were flat and fibrous, and then they would layer them. They would have a layer running this way, and a layer running this way, and then they would put a special glue on it and then put some more of those uh, reeds on it, and then they would pound it until it was soft. And that was the very first paper we ever had. And that's what these scrolls were made out of. And as I told you Sunday night, they're very valuable because it was hard to make these and paper and a papyrus was hard to come by. But so you open up the scroll and it says here in the text that there was writing within it. But then it goes on and says, and on the backside. So what does that tell you about this scroll? Had writing on both sides. Now, it's interesting, if you'll go do a study on this, this is something that was a little bit unusual. In fact, um, scrolls had different sides. The side that was on the inside was called the rector, and the side that was on the back side was called the first It was very uncommon for someone to write on the back side of the scroll, also because of the fact that if you are going to read the back side of the scroll, what would you have to do? You'd have to flip it over, and you'd have to pull it out this way, okay? And because scroll normally goes like this. You're right on the inside, and you just move it along the rollers. If you do it on the back side of it, then you've, you, the process is kind of messed up. You've got to kind of do it like that, okay? So this particular scroll was written on the back side and the front side, and the only time that usually somebody would write on the back side of a scroll is that they had so much information it would not fit in the inside of the scroll, and so they had to continue the thought of the story of whatever they were doing on the back side in order to finish it. All right, so there's some background on that. So with all that being said, what do you think is the emphasis that we're supposed to be seeing in our minds when we see this scroll being extended by God on the throne, and it's obvious from looking at it that this scroll has writing on the inside and on the outside of it. Oh, no, it's not the book of life. The book of life is going to be talked about later, so it can't be that. But um, that's not far off, though, because that is in, in the book of Revelation. I'm, I'm getting at the idea of why is it written on both the back and the front. All right? God has a lot to say here. What do you want to say, Julie? Okay. All right. Everybody keep in mind now, these are, these are visions, so we can make the scroll as big as we want to make them. It doesn't say anything about its size, and, but that might be the case. Um, any other ideas? Yes. What God wants us to see here in a list a little bit is the idea that I think the reason why it's written on both sides is that he wanted to make sure that he tells us everything. He didn't stop. He went ahead and continued it over. This is his completed book. In other words, he didn't have to take, stop writing in this scroll because he ran on the, out of room on the inside and start another scroll, kind of what Julie was referring to, but instead, so we'd have it all in one complete thing, he even used the backside, which is very unusual, but sometimes writers would do that because they wanted to finish what they were writing without going to another scroll, okay? And that might not be the idea or not, because once again, the Bible doesn't define it for us, and we're only going by uh, the fact. But the most important thing is we need to understand and appreciate the very, at the very best of this that this is God's plan. 
Uh, this is the rest of the story. In fact, everything that we're going to be reading from now on in the book of Revelation, the implication is this is what was found in this book. When, the, when these, this scroll is opened, from here on out to the book of Revelation, it's going to be talking about things that were in this scroll. So in a sense, we're just now getting to the book of Revelation or the scroll of Revelation because everything that follows is being pulled out of what we're going to be opening right here. All right? That makes sense? So just kind of an interesting thing there. It also says it was sealed with seven seals. Now, first of all, we need to make sure we understand what a seal is. You remember? You know what those are. You put a ball on their head and they go, oh, 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 oh. Like the burnt thing, okay. In old, in old times, when people wrote a letter to make sure somebody didn't get into it, uh, they had a scroll, they didn't want to make sure that it was secure. Uh, they would tie a ribbon around it, or they'd tie a string around it, tie a piece of leather around it. They would drop hot wax on it. And sometimes there would be an emblem involved, like if it was from the king or some other dignitary. People even in their own household had household seals. Like maybe mine would be a one with a big P on it, and you're stamping on it, and they know that's been sealed in the wax, and you would know if someone had gotten into it because the seal would be broken. Somebody's already opened this before I did. And, um, of course, the idea of seven seals, we've talked about seven before. What would be the idea of that, about this book then? This book had seven seals on it. What would, would, that, what would that lead us to believe? All right. Got the seven churches, but why do we, why do we think there were seven churches? What, what, complete. The number seven in Hebrew numerology, which is so weird. Everybody agrees the number seven means complete or perfect, but you can find nothing anywhere where it says that it is. You know that? That's, what, that's the one of the most craziest things. You can do research until you're blue in the face. There is absolutely no background whatsoever anybody can, anybody can find in Jewish tradition or history but almost everybody agrees seven means complete. But anyway, that's just a little side note there. So we could get the idea that this scroll was completely secure. It was completely sealed. Nobody was getting into this thing. Now, if you go do some more background study on the idea of, of just seals uh, during this time period, um, there was the idea that wheels... If you rode a wheel during this time, that um, the practice was that you would seal this particular wheel with seven seals. And in order for the wheel to be read in a, in the, after somebody dies, all seven of the people who are attesting to that wheel had to show up that were witnesses. And each one had to break that seal individually. Now, I don't know if that has anything to do with this or not, but... This is certainly the will of God that we have before us. Uh, this, is, in a sense, is a part of the last testimony of Jesus Christ as part of his will. So maybe that has something to do with it or not, but uh, just kind of an um, interesting thing. But we need, do need to understand that what's in this book is something that is sealed up with seven seals, and it's something that was secure. It's something that nobody could get into. Um, there are, is some people who think that the, the scroll we're looking at, um, and once again, remember this is vision, so everything doesn't have to make sense in our mind, but as you go through the rest of the book of, of the Revelation, especially in the next couple of chapters, these seals are going to be open, broken on these scrolls individually, 
And as they're individually broken, then you're going to be shown things. Uh, so normally when you look at a scroll and it has seven seals on it, in order to look at any of it, what would have to happen? You have to break all seven. But in the book of Revelation, each seal is broken and something is revealed. So there's some people who think that this scroll had something and there was a seal. Had something and then there was a seal. And something that there was a seal. Well, the question that comes up with, how could John see that it had seven seals? Well, once again, everything you're reading doesn't have to make sense because we're dealing with a vision. The point of the fact is, this is something that had seven seals on it. Yes. Very good. Very good. And, of course, once again, my point in this is don't get caught up in those kind of things. The main things to keep in mind here is that God wanted to reveal his will, but it was closed up. And the reason why it was closed up is because of what is going to happen next. It needed to be closed up. It needed to be secure because of what's going to happen next to make sure we understand and appreciate what's going to happen next. So in verse 2, what happens? It says... I saw a strong angel in the King James. The literal word is mighty. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? So, a mighty angel's there in heaven, and it proclaims in a loud voice. And the idea of loud here is something that could be heard all over the world, underneath the world, and in heaven. Okay, so this is a proclamation that goes out to every single living thing, both physical and spiritual. And the question is asked, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals? All right, first of all, before we go any further, let's talk about a couple things in here. Why do you think it had to be a mighty angel that proclaimed this, that had to ask the question? Here's a question being asked in heaven. And it's not just an angel that is asking this. This is a mighty angel. Picture in your mind, the strongest angel of all, yes. Oh, I like that. Very good. Very good. In other words, take the highest spiritual being there is in heaven. God's obviously the highest. But the highest created being in heaven. And that's the idea behind the mighty angel. And he is the one who is asking this question. In other words, not even I am worthy to open this. Who is worthy to open it? And we need to define what does that mean, worthy? What is he asking? He says, who is worthy? What does worthy mean? Absolutely, I like that idea. It can only be opened by the one who is worthy to open it. And so it would be someone who had some worth of some reason. Uh, someone who, had, who fit the criteria to open it. Everybody on the same page with me? And so this question is asked, and in verse 3, look what happens. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look therein. Now, Does that verse not cover every single possibility there might be out there? Whether it's somebody living in heaven or somebody living in the earth, someone who um, most people think under the earth means someone who's already died. Um, Not only could they not open it, they couldn't even get a peek inside. Yes, Barbara. Well, he's setting the stage for us, for Jesus. Okay? 
all right? Yeah, keep in mind that this is, all, this is almost like watching a play. We're setting the stage here. And so the stage was begun by putting us in the throne room of God and God's power being emphasized, that God's in charge, God's able to do everything. Well, it says God's able to do any, everything. He's able to take care of the situation that the world's in now as far as the persecution in Rome and with the Christians. And now he's going to present his plan or his will, but in order for his will to be carried out, there has to be someone who is worthy. And so we're building up to who is worthy as part of the play, if you will. What do you want to say, Michael? I can, I, I can see that. And the, and the idea in the Greek is that there is a, a period here, a period of time. We don't have much time from the time that the question is asked and the time the question is finally answered. Um, it's almost like if, if, if you all remember me Sunday night was talking about when Jesus got through reading the section of Scripture in the scroll uh, and he went and sat down. And I said, you know, I talked about how in sp- public speaking you learn something called the pregnant pause. Because if you just stand there for a minute and not say anything, what happens? People start paying attention. And some of that's going on here. The question has been put out. And it's almost like visually you have people who maybe have come to challenge the scroll, almost like King Arthur and pulling the sword out of the stone. But it's been discovered that no man is worthy not only to open the scroll, but he can't even peek inside and see what's in it. But look what happens when this has been discovered. Verse 4 says, And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look therein. So John sees the situation, and he starts crying. The actual Greek word is a word for wailing and crying. This is not somebody just shedding some tears. This is somebody who is extremely upset. And it's in the imperfect tense, meaning that this didn't just happen for a few minutes. This went on for some time with John just, just, just crying his heart out. Jeff, what do you want to say? And, and once again, you know, this is where we always need to be careful in reading this book. We're not dealing with a historical narrative. This is not a historical narrative that's giving us fact of something that happened or not. Something like this might have happened. But that's not the way the book of Revelation works. It's the imagery that he wants us to see and experience. I don't believe that there was a time in heaven where God said, oh, look, I've got a book, who can open it? Maybe that happened. I wasn't there. I don't know. But that's the way this type of literature works. It's not a historical narrative. It's what is called apocalyptic language or visions and signs to help us paint a picture. But... The next question I want to ask ourselves, though, tonight, as we look at verse 4, why in the world was John crying so much? Was he just a mama's boy or what? I mean, this man was upset. He was crying hard. What was it that John wanted to know now he doesn't know? Go back to chapter 4 and verse 1. What did God say was going to happen? He said, come up hither and I will show you things which must be hereafter. John, I'm going to show you how this is all going to work out. How is this going to be taken care of? We've just talked to these seven churches, and look at all the things they're dealing with. How is this all going to be taken care of? Well, John gets to heaven and says, I'm finally going to find out how this is all going to work out. 
but nobody can open up the scroll. Or maybe John was looking at it from the standpoint, oh, this is conjecture, we don't know for sure, but looking at the standpoint of how sad, how terrible it was that there is nobody on the face of the earth who have lived or will live or has lived that can ever meet the standards and be worthy enough to reveal the will of God like God wants it revealed. That's, that's, that's the thought that just should upset us, that there's nobody good enough. Yes, ma'am. Yep, exactly right. The John wasn't able to do it. An apostle of Jesus Christ, one that the disciple whom Jesus loved, he couldn't open it. Um, you know, it, it just so upset him. And I think also at the same time, when you, you think about the fact that he's, dealing, he's in the spirit and he's dealing with a vision, and how oftentimes even when we have our own dreams here on earth when we're sleeping at night, uh, you know, there's things sometimes in a dream that even though it's not real, it's a dream, it's just in our head, oh, man, it can upset us. We can wake up some mornings and just be terrified or, or crying or whatnot, depending on what the thing is, you know. Don't, what's wrong with there, Andrew? You never heard me screaming at night. But anyway, um, but John understood that there was a need. And, and once again, I think all of this is used in verse... Verses 2 through 4 is to build up to a climax. This is a pregnant pause. This is, this is setting the stage. This is getting people uh, anticipating what's going to happen. What can be done? Is there any solution to the problem? What will we do? We, we can just throw up our hands in exasperation. I don't know what's going to happen now. How can this be dealt with? Well, the answer happens in verse 5. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David hath prevailed, literally overcame, to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So after a period of time, we don't know how long a period of time, one of the elders, the ones that were sitting of the 24 around the um, throne, we don't know which one it was. The Bible doesn't tell us. You know, sometimes people try to guess who it was, but that does no good and it has no purpose whatsoever. But one of the elders kind of basically came up to John and says, Listen, fella, you don't need to cry. Oh, you can stop your tears. I want you to see something. Behold, I want you to see the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He's the one that's overcome. And he's the one that can open the scroll and, and break those seven seals. Now, what does it mean when it says, Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah? What is that all about? All right, he's a king. Why is he a king? Well, Scott hadn't got there yet. Or he's king of David, okay. Scott hadn't got there yet. But when he gets over to Genesis 49, and Jacob, or Israel, is pronouncing all his different proclamations about the different sons, he's going to come to his son Judah, and he's going to refer to him as the lion's whelp. And he says, from out of your tribe shall come a ruler, shall come the king. And from that tribe, who do we have? Jesus Christ. Okay? And 
chapter, Genesis chapter uh, 39, I mean Genesis chapter 49 and verse 9. Uh, you can read that. And then it's got the root of David, which once again is going back to Old Testament prophecy and history. And the root of David is referred to in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, talking about how the Messiah would be known as the root of David or be the offspring of the lineage of David. And, of course, there's other passages in the Bible that lead us to believe and understand and appreciate that. that All these are messianic prophecies. So here's the fulfillment of who the Messiah is, the Christ, the Anointed One. That's who's going to open this particular book. But notice the emphasis here at the very beginning of this proclamation of how they're describing the person who's going to open the book. What do you think the... the, um, emphasis is on as far as about this particular uh, person who's going to open the book. If you read the, the, of the tribe of Judah and of the offspring of David, what is the emphasis being placed on? His humanity. Okay. If there's someone, someone who came from the tribe of Judah, that means he was born out of which tribe? Somebody who was born in the tribe of Judah. If he was a descendant of David, what does that mean? Well, he's one of the offspring of the different descendants of David. His humanity here at the very beginning is being presented because of what's going to be presented later on. Make sure you understand and appreciate the fact that just as God is, uh, Jesus was God, he was also a man. And then when you look at the very next part of the verse, what does it say? He's the one that what? overcame. In other words, who was the very first man and the only man until Christ comes back who literally overcame sin and overcame death? There's only one. It's Jesus Christ. But he did it how? As a man. Now, think back in chapters 2 and 3, how many times... The emphasis was, if you overcome, then you'll get a crown of life. If you overcome, you'll be a citizen in heaven. If you overcome, you'll be able to spend eternity with me. Well, here's the original overcomer. And he did it as a man because he was from the tribe of Judah and he was from the offspring of David. And so when you're going to picture whatever we picture next, that he's able to open the seal, why is he able to open the seal? Because even as a man, he overcame. That is what makes him worthy. You've heard me talk about this before. The only person ever who was saved by works and kept the New Test- I mean the Old Testament law and could stand before God justified and said, I kept the law perfectly, you have to save me, is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that was able to do that. He's the only one who is worthy now to open the book. And so that's why the emphasis is here that this is not just God that's doing this. This is someone who became a man and did this. Um, He prevailed, even though he was of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Uh, He fit the prophecies of the Old Testament, but he also fit the prophecies as a man. Any questions or comments before we move on? All right, so we get to chapter 6. Boy, we keep running out of time. I mean, verse 6, not chapter 6. I'm jumping too far ahead. And it says, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, literally in the Greek, 
Behold, in the middle of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. All right, we got a lot going on in this verse, and I don't know if we'll finish this verse before we get, get uh, through tonight, but we'll try. First of all, why do you think that it, it's, it's emphasized that when John looked to see who this elder was talking about, he, he, he discovered him where? Where did he find him? This one who's worthy to open the seal. I'm sorry? In the center of the throne. And like I said, in the original language, it's not just in the midst of, it's the idea of being right there dead center. Now, wait a minute, I thought God was on the throne, or one likened to God was on the throne. What happened? Where did he go? Well, he's still there because in the minute we're going to see an exchange take place. But there's something that's being implied here. In the verse before, it talked about him being of the tribe of Judah and of the house of root of uh, David, now we have him dead set in the middle of the throne. So what, what are you going to say, Julie? What aspect is being emphasized now? Right. He was also God, and he had the right to be in the same place where God is. And you notice what the text says? Surrounded by those 24 elders, surrounded by those beasts. In other words, everything we saw in chapter 4 that gave God the glory and the honor now is being bestowed upon him. In fact, later on in the chapter, it's going to be emphasized. There's room for God and him both because they are the same, even though he's the one that overcame. Okay? So make sure you, that's the picture you got pictured in your mind. You were looking at the throne room and you saw one likened to God, but now you look in the throne room, you look at the throne, what do you see? Well, you see this lamb. But notice you don't miss the point that in the midst of the throne room there, there's a lamb, but what does it say about the lamb? What does it say about the lamb? What does it say, Julie? He was slain, but what does it say about him before he was slain? There's something we miss sometimes here. Look very carefully at the text. Standing. The emphasis is on the standing. Now, what Julie says is true, but you've got to have the standing there so you can appreciate the next thing that happens. It says there stood or standing a lamb that had been put to death. Now, not often do you see lambs that have been put to death standing. And that's the picture they want us to see, though. In fact, depending on how vivid you want to make this, you're supposed to see a lamb that has its throat cut and its white fleece covered in blood. By all, every counts, he should be dead, but instead of being dead, even though his throat's been slit because he's the sacrificial lamb, he's still standing. Absolutely. So here you have a lamb who has been sacrificed, but now is alive. A lamb who's been put to death, but now is alive. So alive that it's standing. It's not just lying there, maybe breathing a little bit, or maybe his eyes fluttering a little bit. It's standing. It's standing right there in the middle of the throne. Now, this might not mean anything to some of you, but I think it's interesting. This is the only place, and it's only in the book of Revelation this word is used, this word for lamb is, appears 29 times in the book of Revelation, but it's a totally different word for lamb in the rest of the New Testament. In other words, for example, in John 1.29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus walking down the path, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. 
That word for lamb is a totally different word than the word we have right here. They both mean lamb, but it's a totally different word. The word for lamb here is only used in the book of Revelation. The lamb that's being talked about in, in John uh, 129 is the, the um, Greek word um, amos or amnos. Um, it's A-M-N-O-S, which means a lamb, just like any kind of lamb, okay? But here in the book of Revelation, the word uh, is the word arnon, which is A-R-N-I-O-N, which means a lamb that is to be used to sacrifice, okay? Now, the, thing seem, the words carry the same idea when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. He was meaning this is the Lamb that's going to be sacrificed to take the sins of the world. But here in the book of Revelation, when it's talking about Jesus here, it changes from something that will be sacrificed to something that has been sacrificed. Is why the change of words here. This is a Lamb that has already been sacrificed. It's not a Lamb that's going to be sacrificed one day. This Lamb's already been sacrificed. But guess what? It's still standing. It's been killed, but it's still alive. King James Version says, A lamb as it had been slain. But then it goes on and says, Mercy. Um, it says it has um, seven horns. So the picture in your mind this lamb that has the slit throat, but still standing, blood all over him. And this don't have, he didn't have just the two horns, he has seven horns. What's this idea of horns? All right. Kings, powers, what are you going to say, Fred? Okay, um, very quickly, um, Scott, look up um, Deuteronomy 33, uh, 17, and Corbin says you got your phone there, you can find it real quick, um, 1 Kings 22, 11. And there's several different passages in the Old Testament that um, talk about this idea of horns and what it represents, but very quickly, uh, read it for us there, Scott. Okay, so the horns, symbolically, in that passage, is referring to what? Referring to power, strength, the ability to move nations. All right, Corbin, read about yours. Verse 11, 22-11. All right, horns of iron, symbolizing God's power and victory over these armies. And so... Allusion is being made here to the fact that here's a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, but he has perfect what? Perfect power. He's omnipotent like God is omnipotent. And we're running out of time, but he also has seven eyes. And once again, we talked about earlier in chapter 4 that God is omnipresent and he's omniscient. He sees everything and he's everywhere. He knows everything. And the same way with this lamb. This lamb has been sacrificed. This lamb has been resurrected. And this lamb is God. He has the power of God. And that's the only one that has the ability or is worthy enough and answers the question, who can open up this book? And the answer is, it's Jesus Christ. He's the only man who is able to. And because of what he has done, he has died, he has resurrected, and now he's in the throne room of God. The Bible tells us he's at the right hand of God. And he is the one that's going to open up his book. And that makes sense to us because of the fact when the announcement was made that Jesus was coming to this earth, they said, you shall call him Emmanuel. 
which means what? God with us. And so he is the only one who is worthy to open up this book. And he's going to get this book, and he's going to open it up, and he's going to open up a bunch of stuff. But we better stop there because we've run out of time. Any, any quick questions, comments, anything anybody want to add? All right, thank you for your attention and your help tonight.